Part two Propositions forty one to forty five of The Ethics by Spinoza. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ernst Patinama. The Ethics by Benedict de Spinoza. Translated by R. H. M. Elvis. Part 2. Propositions 41 to 45. Proposition 41. Knowledge of the first kind is the only source of falsity. Knowledge of the second and third kinds is necessarily true. Proof. To knowledge of the first kind we have, in the foregoing note, assigned all those ideas which are inadequate and confused. Therefore, this kind of knowledge is the only source of falsity. Part 2, Proposition 35. Furthermore, we assigned to the second and third kinds of knowledge those ideas which are adequate. Therefore, these kinds are necessarily true. Part 2, Proposition 34. Quod erat demonstrandum. Proposition 42. Knowledge of the second and third kinds, not knowledge of the first kind, teaches us to distinguish the true from the false. Proof. This proposition is self-evident. He who knows how to distinguish between true and false must have an adequate idea of true and false. That is, Part 2, Proposition 40, Note 2. He must know the true and the false by the second or third kind of knowledge. Proposition 43. He who has a true idea simultaneously knows that he has a true idea and cannot doubt of the truth of the thing perceived. Proof. A true idea in us is an idea which is adequate in God, in so far as he is displayed through the nature of the human mind. Part 2, Proposition 11, Corollary. Let us suppose that there is in God, in so far as he is displayed through the human mind, an adequate idea, A. The idea of this idea must also necessarily be in God and be referred to him in the same way as the idea by part two proposition twenty whereof the proof is of universal application but the idea is supposed to be referred to god in so far as he is displayed through the human mind therefore the idea of the idea must be referred to god in the same manner that is by part two proposition eleven corollary the adequate idea of the idea A will be in the mind which has the adequate idea A. Therefore he who has an adequate idea or knows a thing truly, part 2, proposition 34, must at the same time have an adequate idea or true knowledge of his knowledge. That is, obviously, he must be assured. Quod erat demonstrandum. Note. I explained in the note to part two, proposition.
proposition twenty one what is meant by the idea of an idea but we may remark that the foregoing proposition is in itself sufficiently plain no one who has a true idea is ignorant that a true idea involves the highest certainty for to have a true idea is only another expression for knowing a thing perfectly or as well as possible no one indeed can doubt of this unless he thinks that an idea is something lifeless like a picture on a panel and not a mode of thinking namely the very act of understanding and who i ask can know that he understands anything unless he do first understand it in other words who can know that he is sure of a thing unless he be first sure of that thing further what can there be more clear and more certain than a true idea as a standard of truth even as light displays both itself and darkness so is truth a standard both of itself and of falsity i think i have thus sufficiently answered these questions namely if a true idea is distinguished from a false idea only in so far as it is said to agree with its object a true idea has no more reality or perfection than a false idea since the two are only distinguished by an extrinsic mark consequently neither will a man who has a true idea have any advantage over him who has only false ideas further how comes it that men have false ideas lastly how can anyone be sure that he has ideas which agree with their objects these questions i repeat i have in my opinion sufficiently answered the difference between a true idea and a false idea is plain from what was said in part two proposition thirty five the former is related to the latter as being is to not being the causes of falsity i have set forth very clearly in part two proposition nineteen and part two proposition thirty five with the note from what is there stated the difference between a man who has true ideas and a man who has only false ideas is made apparent as for the last question as to how a man can be sure that he has ideas that agree with their objects i have just pointed out with abundant clearness that his knowledge arises from the simple fact that he has an idea which corresponds with its object in other words that truth is its own standard we may add that our mind in so far as it perceives things truly is part of the infinite intellect of god part two proposition eleven corollary therefore the clear and distinct ideas of the mind are as necessarily true as the ideas of god proposition forty four it is not in the nature of reason to regard things as contingent but as necessary proof it is in the nature of reason to perceive things truly part two proposition forty one namely part one axiom six as they are in themselves that is 
Part 1, Proposition 29, not as contingent, but as necessary. Quod erat demonstrandum. Corollary 1. Hence it follows that it is only through our imagination that we consider things, whether in respect to the future or the past, as contingent. Note. How this way of looking at things arises, I will briefly explain. We have shown above, Part 2, Proposition 17 and Corollary, that the mind always regards things as present to itself, even though they be not in existence, until some causes arise which exclude their existence and presence. Further, Part 2, Proposition 18, we showed that if the human body has once been affected by two external bodies simultaneously, the mind, when it afterwards imagines one of the said external bodies, will straightway remember the other, that is, it will regard both as present to itself, unless there arise causes which exclude their existence and presence. Further, no one doubts that we imagine time from the fact that we imagine bodies to be moved some more slowly than others, some more quickly, some at equal speed. Thus, let us suppose that a child yesterday saw Peter for the first time in the morning, Paul at noon, and Simon in the evening. Then, that today he again sees Peter in the morning. It is evident from Part 2, Proposition 18, that... As soon as he sees the morning light, he will imagine that the sun will traverse the same parts of the sky as it did when he saw it on the preceding day. In other words, he will imagine a complete day, and, together with his imagination of the morning, he will imagine Peter, with noon he will imagine Paul, and with evening he will imagine Simon, that is, he will imagine the existence of Paul and Simon in relation to a future time. On the other hand, if he sees Simon in the evening, he will refer Peter and Paul to a past time, by imagining them simultaneously with the imagination of a past time. If it should at any time happen that on some other evening the child should see James instead of Simon, he will, on the following morning, associate with his imagination of evening sometimes Simon, sometimes James, not both together. For the child is supposed to have seen at evening one or other of them, not both together. His imagination will therefore waver, and with the imagination of future evenings he will associate first one, then the other. That is, he will imagine them in the future, neither of them as certain, but both as contingent. This wavering of the imagination will be the same, if the imagination be concerned with things which we thus contemplate, standing in relation to time past or time present. Consequently, we may imagine things as contingent, whether they be referred to time present, past, or future. Corollary 2 it is in the nature of reason to perceive things under a certain form of eternity, sub quadam eternitatis specie. Proof. 
it is in the nature of reason to regard things not as contingent but as necessary part two proposition forty four reason perceives this necessity of things part two proposition forty one truly that is part one axiom six as it is in itself but part one proposition sixteen this necessity of things is the very necessity of the eternal nature of god therefore it is in the nature of reason to regard things under this form of eternity we may add that the basis of reason are the notions part two proposition thirty eight which answer to things common to all and which part two proposition thirty seven do not answer to the essence of any particular thing which must therefore be conceived without any relation to time under a certain form of eternity proposition forty five every idea of every body or of every particular thing actually existing necessarily involves the eternal and infinite essence of god proof the idea of a particular thing actually existing necessarily involves both the existence and the essence of the said thing part two proposition eight now particular things cannot be conceived without god part one proposition fifteen but inasmuch as part two proposition six they have god for their cause in so far as he is regarded under the attribute of which the things in question are modes their ideas must necessarily involve part one axiom four the conception of the attributes of those ideas that is part one proposition six the eternal and infinite essence of god quod erat demonstrandum note by existence i do not here mean duration that is existence in so far as it is conceived abstractedly and as a certain form of quantity i am speaking of the very nature of existence which is assigned to particular things because they follow in infinite numbers and in infinite ways from the eternal necessity of god's nature part one proposition sixteen i am speaking i repeat of the very existence of particular things in so far as they are in god for although each particular thing be conditioned by another particular thing to exist in a given way yet the force whereby each particular thing perseveres in existing follows from the eternal necessity of god's nature c f part one proposition twenty four corollary end of part two propositions forty one to forty five recording by ernst patinama